Aberdeen is known as the Granite City. Its old buildings cut from the grey stone mined up at the now defunct quarry on Rubislaw Hill. Locals will try and convince you that when the sun comes out, everything sparkles silver because of the mica. But on most days, it just feels grey and pretty heavy. So Nicholas's church is no exception to that. It looms up out of the graveyard, tucked just behind the spot where buskers play bagpipes up in the main square of town. As soon as I walk in, it's clear why Gina Sims refers to it as the offshore chapel. I don't know if you know about the offshore chapel. It's in the Kirk of St Nicholas in Aberdeen. At that, there's, there's a stained glass window and it depicts... And I can't remember if the red ones are all the other platforms that were there at the time of Piper or if the white ones were the other ones, but the one that's different is the one that was Piper. The window itself is high and dominates the chapel inside the main church. It shows the town of Aberdeen, its coastline and the waves of the North Sea. Its vibrant blues and greens are the first thing you see as you enter the kirk. Below the window is a half-burned candle and a plaque for the 45 people who were killed when a Chinook helicopter went down. It was ferrying passengers back from the Brent field when it crashed, just 20 months before Piper happened. Let us pray. Gracious God, throughout the ages, you transform sickness into health and death into life. Open us to the power of your presence. The fact that Piper happened so soon after the Chinook disaster only made everything worse. It had such an impact on the same community. Gina Sims was a driving force behind the offshore women's support group, which earned them the nickname the North Sea Samaritans. She becomes emotional even now when she talks about the impact she saw. It could have been any platform. It could have been anybody's husband. And it runs deep. I mean, I met a friend on Monday in Aberdeen. She now lives in Spain. She worked for Wood Group and personnel at the time and she came through the horrors of the helicopter, the Chinook, and then Piper, you know, and she came over to, to specifically go to the 30th memorial because she says, I can't ever forget them. I can see their faces to this day. I can see these guys, you know, that used to come in and check in, oh, you're going for a medical, right, you know, be in time the next time, and all the banter that you had, you know, with them. She says, I can see them all. She says, and I'll never forget. This is Baseline by Safety Culture. I'm Claire Stewart. Specialist trauma psychologist David Alexander says one thing people underestimate is how resilient humans can be when things hit the fan. People band together, survivors are supported and everyone is alert to trauma after major disasters. But as time wears on, the ripple effect still reverberates, even after the companies involved and the news channels seem to have forgotten. Inside St Nicholas's Church, near the entrance, there's a large display cabinet. It has photos and it's got the order of service from every one of the commemoration memorials held since 1988. And David Alexander has been to his fair share of them. He says there's a process to the aftermath and it plays out differently if you're a survivor or for families of the victims and the community around them. Here's Steve Ray. And I remember talking to David and him saying, you need to come along. I said, well, I don't. I'm fine. He said, well, it would be good to see you 
I said, well, hey, I'll think about it. But I knew I just didn't want to go along. And then I got a phone call from Anne, who was the other councillor, saying, Steve, would really like you to come along. And I'm like, I told David, I'm really OK. They go, yeah, you may think you're OK, but I'm not sure you are. And it would be good just to see you along. And I said, look, I'm not coming along. They go, well, maybe it would be good for others to see that you're OK, because they are not. David looks like the kind of fellow you'd find reading periodicals in the local library until you find out that he specialises in de-radicalising fundamentalist Islamic youths and training hostage negotiators. Everyone I interviewed spoke about him with this kind of reverence. Thank God we had David Alexander, because it was David Alexander that helped so many of those that did survive pick up the pieces and have some sort of life. You know, and they, they wouldn't have had because... Psychological services just weren't, you know, they weren't prepared for this sort of thing in this country. So I invite him for a chat over a glass of wine because I want to find out how and why the ripple effect changes people. David Alexander first heard about the Piper Alpha disaster about 10 hours after the explosion on July 7, 1988. People think this is a hackneyed contrived anecdote. It's not actually. I'd heard about it in the morning TV, but I had a clinic that morning and I thought, Jesus. By that time, the real scale of it had not really come through. And I always remember the STV newscaster whom I know, and she played it, I think, honestly cool, because she didn't really know. Nobody really knew, right? And I was doing a clinic and there's a delightful old lady at my clinic. She said, you know, I'm not mocking her. I said, no, doctor, I think you should be up the road helping these men at A&E. At 2am, the offshore specialist team from Aberdeen Royal Infirmary assembled and choppered to Piper to stabilise survivors ready for the trip back. Reports say the flames could be seen from more than 80 miles away as the choppers flew in. Over the next six hours, all the survivors were airlifted out. But as one BBC journalist waiting at the heliport recalls, the awful thing was that there were not that many helicopters coming back. As the last choppers were coming in, David took the advice of his patient and called through to the police just to check if he should go up to the accident and emergency department. So I phoned the Bobbies, because I worked for the Bobbies, and I said, look, I don't know what I've got to offer. He says, oh, David, you've dealt with lots of bodies, because I dealt with the terminal care unit. And, and he, he said, look, come up. We've got all these bodies and bits. And I said, OK. Then I do remember the choppers were starting to come in, eh, and there were survivors. 57 or something. But then there's other choppers with the rest. I only met with survivors of Piper Alpha during my time in Scotland. In news reporting, there's a particular term journos use when they're sent out to talk to the families of the victims. It's called doing a death knock, and you get special training on just how to get the most out of it, if you actually do them. I've never done one before, and even this long after the event, I find it really hard to think about asking families to rehash what they've been through. So I asked David about what it's like for the people left behind. And occasionally with disasters like Piper, I mean, it is actually not funny, and I don't want this to sound facetious or funny. Some ladies believed that their husband was a strong swimmer, he'd have amnesia, and he'd been picked up by a Norwegian trawler. So they, they tried to find a nice way out of this awful catastrophe. Uh, there was another one. It was a guy, um, a young Welshman, and the family flew up from Wales, and we tried to explain that from all the accounts, witness accounts, survivors' accounts, this young lad hadn't made it. And one of the families said, but Gareth plays rugby for Cardiff. 
you know, you know so this, I mean, I hope that comes over as not, not critical or being cheeky. It's just, it's just the awful plight of people who want to find a, a, a happy ending, you know, the sun shining again, when sadly we all knew the sun was not going to shine again. David says what's often overlooked is the impact something like Piper has beyond victims and survivors. He lists a roll call of community members you'd never otherwise think of. The receptionist at the hospital on the morning the survivors and the bodies were brought in. The women on the Occidental switchboard fielding calls for updates during the emergency. A disaster the scale of Piper unsettles everyone. I mean, guys, for example, who would have been on that shift on Piper but changed it. Uh, people who feel guilty, okay? People who are on the Cormorant Alpha, which was a cloned version of Piper. So I spoke to an engineer once and he was worried. He says, if we've got a basic flaw in Piper, there's one in Cormorant. So there are these kind of things. People, professionals nearly always blame themselves for not doing enough. If only I'd paid more attention to the CPR training. If only we'd got there quicker. If If only... Gina saw it firsthand over and over again after every disaster when she was manning the volunteer helpline that the offshore women's group set up. I could have sat for six weeks solid because I didn't have I didn't have anybody else trained for the helpline bar me at that time. And I could have sat for six weeks solid just taking calls. And it was calls from mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, friends from previous disasters that hear it it was again. It was calls from offshore workers there for the grace of God, you know, go, go I. I asked David if it's a thing, whether people's response to trauma changes over time. He pulls a paper napkin towards him on the table and whips out a pen. And if you look at the curve of adjustment, if I can draw it for you, if that's your normal line of coping, nice straight line, right? When your disaster hits you, we actually cope remarkably well. It's what we call the honeymoon phase. You know, people come all over the world to help, all the, all the top guys come, girls come help, and so on. You're coping very well. Then the cavalry have to go away. For example, after Piper, there was Lockerbie. And people said to me, so Prof, are we now the forgotten survivors? And I said, well, no, you're not forgotten. But sort of. Can't, can't yeah. be everywhere, right? Yeah. But the, the worst thing is you see a dip below that straight line, and that's the time when you've got legal inquiry, media intrusion, blame ascribing, a f- arguments over compensation, a, uh, when the lawyers get involved, it can be a melee. So it becomes what we sometimes call the second disaster. Most people don't even know about the second disaster, and the triggers will be different for everyone. You have no uniform, you have nothing to hide behind, then you're suddenly exposed to another dimension to your tragedy. It's different when you're in your uniform, as I wear, or a white coat, or things like that. You have your armour, I call it. Shorn of that, the memories hit you from a different angle. And there is a defence sometimes. People will shut things out. I mean, we found with torture victims. Now, a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, and, and other mental health workers say, as though they were Freud, you know, you must always talk it out. Actually, this is not true. There are some people who do not benefit from talking things through. So you do not shine lights in their eyes, give them sodium barbitol, and say, now tell me what it was like, you know. This is bullshit. Jeff Bolands was in the control room the night Piper exploded. He spent a really long time ignoring the impact the event had on him, 
like Steve, he didn't really talk about it. But a friend eventually convinced him to write a book about the experience to coincide with the disaster's 30th anniversary. I'll go back and read your book. I've done this. I've got a copy of you. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I'm really interested in it, actually. Did you see Lord Colin had a book, had a copy of it? Yeah, yeah. And he went out, especially after the interview, and wandered off out into the house and found it and brought it back um, and had your business card with it. I saw him a few years ago, but um, they were opening a new centre and and Lord Colin opened it. He's a very cool guy, isn't he? Yeah, he was was good. Yeah. He he handled Um, the inquiry well. Writing actually helped him process the trauma all these years later but he's quick to admit he had no real appreciation at the time of just how much the experience had changed him. Well, I glossed over PTSD. I just sent my wife and everybody else. There's nothing the matter with me. It's everybody else who was out of step. But um, I wasn't particularly good to live with. People say I'm not good to live with now, but there you are. I was, <laughs> I was even worse then. I asked David if he sees this a bit and how a trauma impacts families. Oh, dreadfully. Uh, I find that in almost most, not all, most traumas. The, the survivor will often say, you know, Prof, I'd rather be me than my wife. Since Piper happened, Jeff's become a nervous flyer and subjects his family to safety checks whenever they go to hotels. We've all, I think, in the back of our mind, all have this thing that it'll never happen to me. It's changed because, for example, when I go in a hotel... I'll work out where the safety exits are, where the fire thing is, when I go on holiday and things like that. And my wife stopped laughing at me about it because she knows I do it. And I say to her, we all know how to get out of here and I get in my own mind how I would get out of there if I couldn't see, which I never, ever did before. I'd also seen a newspaper story about how he'd physically dragged his wife out of a DIY store because the noise of the Tannoy PA system had tripped something in him. I've got a really good memory for things, but that came from my wife. My wife won't talk about it, but my friend who sort of edited the book for me, I wrote it all and she uh, spoke to my wife and did an interview with her and she said that. And that was news to me up to a couple of years ago. But I can imagine it happening because the time I used to go off all the time on the platform. He's got no problem talking about it now and he's spoken about Piper at conferences around the world. But I do notice as we talk, his left hand rests on the desk and he's subconsciously wiring away at a tissue that's clenched in his fist. I take a walk down to Waterloo Quay in Aberdeen. The sun's shining and the water's sparkling. Behind tall wire fences, forklifts and cranes work in tandem to hoist goods onto standby vessels before they head out to the rigs. Men wearing the uniform of a Norwegian company wander around on an enormous rescue boat. I can see they're laughing and relaxed as it comes into dock. When I ask people to talk about life offshore, the first thing they usually say is some funny story about mucking around with their mates and they get nostalgic about the camaraderie of life on the rigs. Gina says the shared experiences offshore turn co-workers into brothers. But the flip side is that it can be isolating to try and share those same experiences with family and friends who just can't really understand. I heard a lot about the breakdown of families in the wake of Piper. Multiple divorces, alcoholism, men committing suicide years after the event. I asked Steve about the impact Piper had on his girlfriend. She was four months pregnant with their first child when it happened. You can tape this bit if you want, but I'm really not going to talk. So there's two things I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about 
the impact on my family, my siblings and my my mum, and I'm not going to talk about the impact on my girlfriend at the time, because that is something that's very personal, and I don't think they'd be particularly pleased to hear me talking about that. So I'll talk about anything I said anything, but I will not talk about that side of it. So I ask about his siblings, just in case. I, I think it probably impacted him more than I understood. My mum was a widow very young. Uh, she'd had tremendous loss in her life as a, as a young mother. And uh, I decided right off the bat that I was going to bring her no grief. He says that's why his first thought on the rescue vessel was to call his mum. So my mother never spoke about it openly. It was just one of those things you don't speak about. But I know from now that uh, they all thought about it differently. In Aberdeen, I find the locals are really wary of outsiders who swing through, asking questions and wanting to rehash Piper. Outsiders just like me. Even Steve balks when I ask him to detail what he saw and what he smelt and maybe what he heard on the night. In not so many words, he tells me it's disaster porn. And I guess to an extent he's right. That is much more compelling to sell stories than it is to say, well, hey, this is a fact. And that's the challenge I've always had over the years is you give some factual information and it gets lost in the sensationalisation. By the end of our interview, I managed to get him to admit that there might just be some merit to rehashing the horror he witnessed because it keeps the story alive in people's memories and it's a constant reminder for companies to be vigilant about what goes on in their own workplaces. As Steve sees it, the night Piper blew up, it reset his own baseline of safety and he wants it to do the same for everyone else. Corporate memory is poor, right? Because it depends on legacy. Leadership by its very default is dependent on the, the individual in question. Steve's now part of the management tier, working as a leader at WellSafe Solutions, which specialises in helping companies shut down wells. Am I an example of a good leader? I am probably better at it now because of my experience. Because for me, it's difficult for me to deviate from my known experience because it's real for me. My corporate memory is burned. In a perverse kind of way, it makes you wonder whether we need another accident to reset the baseline. Steve doesn't disagree. I wonder if it makes him frustrated to watch more recent catastrophes play out, like the Grenfell Tower fire, especially when you find out that they happen because people normalised unsafe practices, which just seems to make accidents inevitable. T-minus 15 seconds. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. We have main engine start, 4, 3, 2, 1... And liftoff, liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. American sociologist Diane Vaughan coined the term normalisation of deviance. It came from her investigation into the Challenger space shuttle accident that killed seven astronauts back in 1986. No one was expecting anything to go wrong, she said, when it turned out NASA managers ignored warnings from the space shuttle engineers that it was too cold and too dangerous to launch. Since then, what she called groupthink and normalisation has led to a number of accidents, as Lord Cullen reminds me. There are examples in the United Kingdom. There was a problem in one or two places where there were major accidents and it had become the norm just to ignore alarms or ignore signs. Now, that is terribly dangerous and insidious because if people get used to things then um, the attention becomes blunted 
It's very dangerous. It happened most recently with the Grenfell Tower fire in June 2017. That disaster killed 72 people. Why did the fire spread so quickly? The investigation found that building management had decided to update the building using a cheaper form of cladding than was originally recommended. One of the reasons it wasn't the preferred material was because it was much less safe than other options. But it seems like management just didn't take that into account. You just can't believe that. You can't believe that anybody put flammable cladding on the outside. If I drove past Grenfell Tower and somebody says to me, is that cladding flammable, inflammable? I would say, oh, it'd be inflammable under building regulations. Oh, no, it's inflammable. No, it's flammable. Oh, no, I bet you it isn't. But it's unbelievable, that. That's Jeff, when I asked him whether it was traumatic for him to see news coverage of people caught in new disasters. I asked Steve the same thing, and David Alexander. They all talk about the fact safety protocol in Grenfell was for people to stay put in their apartments rather than just try and escape the building. I'm not criticising the fire services and that could do a good job, but the advice to, to stay where you are is unbelievable. I, I, my advice to anybody is get out as quick as you can. The same thing had happened on Piper. In the event of an emergency, the men were told to stay put and wait for evacuation. I mean, Piper was both gas and oil. Right, so you have some idea what it's going to be like. And now, I'm going to run the risk of maybe getting into trouble here, but it, this is true. I think you'll find in Cullen's report that the instruction from the training institution in the eventuality of a potential disaster was to muster in the accommodation area. Those who'd followed the rule book died. David Alexander is right. The men were told to go to the lifeboats and, failing that, to go to the dining room or the galley where they should wait for helicopter evacuation. And those lads who said, stuff this for a joke, I'm over the side. Now, the one thing we're always taught is don't jump into water from a height. It'll break your neck. And especially if they've got their inflatable jacket on, because if they don't do this, the jacket hits the water and decapitates them. In both Grenfell and Piper, companies organised their disaster plans based on what they thought to be right at the time. But that a similar issue arose in different industries 30 years apart makes me wonder whether maybe we need to rethink how we're assessing the possibility of catastrophic risk and how we're planning for it. Appendix H of the Cullen Report is clinically titled Schedule of Information Relating to the Deceased. It's 22 pages listing the names and occupation, the last known whereabouts, or the point of recovery and the cause of death for each of those men. It shows that of those who died on Piper, 81 were recovered from the accommodation block. The heat and explosions had been so great the whole four-storey unit had just shorn off from the rig and tipped into the water. I think there was about 50-ish oxy personnel on board, maybe. Don't know the exact number. There's only six of us survived. Four of us were out working on the night shift and two were still at work because they were working over. All the other personnel were in the accommodation block and stayed and they were all killed. And new personnel on the platform who didn't, who took a chance and got out and jumped over the side, climbed over the side, did a runner. That's where the other 60 survivors came from. It was on the, uh, the silver pit, just watching it on go through one explosion after the other. And then when I saw the accommodation block 
fall into the sea and it was like in slow motion where it just all collapsed into the sea and I realised then that there was going to be a lot of fatalities but I never realised how many fatalities there would be till I was ready to leave the hospital. Over three days in October, recovery teams pulled the bodies from inside D-Deck where workers had been told to muster. For a number of the survivors, it reopened the trauma. It was a few months after and just seeing it come up was... Uh, if you look at seconds from disaster, I think National Geographic did it and that shows you it being lifted up and that is a poignant moment seeing that come up. I was attending um, quite a few funerals at the time as well, which was not easy, you know, because you're going to get that guilt feeling whether you like it or not, it's going to be with you. In the months after Piper, Steve threw himself into college, learning computer-aided design, because he'd always kind of wanted to be an architect, and he was fairly sure he didn't want to go back into the offshore industry. Then I was getting an all right, we were doing sort of some plans for the future and all the rest of it, and then uh, they raised the module the accommodation module in October and that just opened up another period of bereft and brief because I was all these guys who had lost their life were in that module you know and all of a sudden it was God you put all these funerals behind you and here's another 84 coming at you if you choose to go 84 and I got to that place going I remember going to three funerals in one day and thinking I have to stop this because it's really affecting me Rightly or wrongly, he says, he stopped going to funerals and called it closure. I just knew that if I lived in the moment, the moment would haunt me. And I also knew that I didn't want to be a victim. I was already a survivor and I I felt like I was wearing a badge that everybody was going, he was some Piper off. So he didn't talk about Piper for another 25 years. There are people out there who live with this and deal with it much less adequately than I do. And I'm very conscious of that. And that's the guys that don't really get much mention. It's of the 61 that survived, not 61 left. But there's nothing really about these guys. You know, and you talk about mental health and workplace and all this. God, I sat in that outreach room thinking, Jesus Christ, these guys are broken men. Mm. You know, I watched a neighbour who I didn't know. I knew he was on Piper, but I didn't know of him. And he was digging a hole in his garden for months drinking every day just because he didn't know what to do with himself. And it wasn't until his wife and his daughter said, we're leaving you unless you fill in that hole and get your shit together. And he ended up being one of the uh, models for the monument. And that's what got him back on, back on target. When I speak to people in Aberdeen, almost the first thing they'd say was, oh, have you seen the monument yet? It turns out Steve's a trustee for Pound for Piper, the charity that organised it. So I jump on a bus and head out past the granite quarry, past the sports fields, walk past the children's animal farm at one end of Hazelhead Park, down the path to the Rose Garden. It's difficult to imagine 167 people in one spot, not coming back. It's a lot. On the base of the statue is inscribed the name of the men. This has been Baseline from Safety Culture, the makers of iAuditor. Next episode, we'll look at why the changes made after Piper might not be as effective as they once were and why many in the industry are counting down to the next disaster. 
Robert Adams, George Anderson, Ian Anderson, John Anderson, Mark Ashton, Barry Barber, Craig Barclay, Amabile Jim Borg, Eric Briancon, Hugh Briston, Henry Brown, Stephen Brown, Gordon Bruce, James Bruce, Carl Buss, David Campbell, David A. Campbell, Alexander Cargill, Alan Carter, Robert Cleland, Stephen Cole, Hugh Connor, Bill Coots, William Cowie, Michael Cox, Alan Craddock, Edward Croden, Bernard Curtis, Jose de Silva, John Dawson, Eric Deverall, Alexander Duncan, Charles Duncan, Eric Duncan, John Duncan, Thomas Duncan, William Duncan, David Ellis, Douglas Finlay, Harry Fluke, George Fowler, Alex Frew, Samuel Gallagher, Miguel Galvarez, Ernie Gibson, Albert Gill, Kevin Gilligan, Sean Glendenning, Stephen Goodwin, Peter Grant, Cyril Gray, Michael Groves, John Hackett, Ian Hay, Thomas Hayes, James Heggie, David Henderson, Philip Houston, Duncan Jennings, Christopher Cavanna, William Kelly, Ian Killington, Brian Kirby, Stuart Knox, Terence Lagur, Graham Laurie, Brian Lithgow, Robert Littlejohn, Martin Longstaff, Sidney McBoyle, Robert McCall, James McCulloch, Alistair MacDonald, Thomas McEwen, William McGregor, William McIntosh, Gordon McKay, Charles McLaughlin, Neil McLeod, Francis McPake, David McWinney, Dougald McWilliams, Raymond Marnie, John Martin, Carl Mearns, Derek Miller, Alan Miller, Frank Miller, Les Morris, Bruce Munro, George Murray, James Niven, Graham Noble, Michael O'Shea, Ian Piper, Wasil Pokribunik, Neil Pyman, Terence Quinn, William Rayburn, Donald Reed, Robert Reed, Alan Riddick, Adrian Roberts, Alexander Robertson, Donald Robertson, Gary Ross, Michael Ryan, Stanley Sangster, James Savage, Michael Scordy, Bill Scorgie, Colin Seaton, Robert Selby, Michael Serink, Michael Short, Richard Skinner, William Smith, Kenneth Stevenson, Thomas Sterling, James Stott, Jürgen Sturwerker, Alexander Taylor, Alistair Thompson, John Wakefield, Michael Walker, Brian Ward, Gareth Watkin, Alexander Wibley, Kevin White, Robert Whiteley, Graham White, James White, Alan Wicks, Paul Williamson, David Weiser, and the men who were never recovered, Wilson Bain, Alan Barr, Hugh Brackenridge, Sandy Bremner, Robert Carroll, John Cook, John Cooper, Ian Galanders, John Goldthorpe, James Gordon, David Gorman, Kenneth Graham, Harold Green, Geoffrey Jones, Alex Lang, Finlay Leggett, 
Alexander McElloy, Frederick McGurk, John Malloy, Robert Pearston, Raymond Price, Gordon Rennie, Robert Richard, John Scott, James Spears, Stuart Sutherland, Terence Sutton, Robert Vernon, Frank Watson, John Woodcock, and Brian Batchelor and Malcolm Story, 44 and 38, on board the rescue boat, who were killed attempting to get men out of the water. Baseline was produced for Safety Culture by Audio Crafts' Jess O'Callaghan and by me, Claire Stewart. Sound designed by Tegan Nichols and original music written and performed by Karen Joyce and Kirsty McCann. Thanks also to Pauline Hailstones, Lord and Lady Cullen, Steve Ray, David Alexander, Jeff Bolands, Gina Sims, Jake Malloy and to Jan Hayes for their gracious assistance.